This is a question and answer session with Joel and Andrea titled Worldly Pleasures and the Spiritual Quest. Recorded November 14, 1999 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So I said before we're going to try an experiment this morning. Uh, open questions, discussion, comments, and I ask you to do two things. One is Please speak up. This is a very good microphone. It can pick you up. You don't have to shout, but if you mumble, then somebody trying to listen to this tape has to keep turning the volume up and down. So if you just speak up naturally, that will be fine. And the second is, if you have a question here or a comment, let's at least begin by addressing it to one of us, and one of us can start, and the other one can disagree or whatever we want to do. Fill it. <laughs> Fill it. <laughs> So who has a question? Well, I have a question. Yes. Um, For whom? Um, well, let's start with Andre. When we, in common parlance, we think of ourselves as being such and such a self and a person, having such and such a personality, uh, you know, having these likes and dislikes and so on. It seems like in the path that we're talking about, we're moving toward a place where there isn't any I there. There's no, you can't find the self. And so, if we start thinking of ourselves in that way, what are we thinking? <laughs> Part of the reason why we meditate is to, um, is to develop a concentration of awareness or a kind of penetration of insight so that we can actually look into the nature of things that we've created with our thinking. And so the thought of an I, with the process of meditation, is a concept that begins to break down very naturally in and of itself. And in the process, what becomes visible is that every idea I have about an I, or a personality, or a predilection, predisposition, <coughs> likes, dislikes, etc., etc., if we gave each of those a little time of analysis, we would see how they are completely related and dependent upon other events in our lives, other people, other conditioning, basically. And how every time the idea of a self, of a personality, of a particular being, um, existing intrinsically of my own, arises awareness, sees that that is an interdependent, codependent related event. And that if the event doesn't arise together, that thought or that experience wouldn't arise. Then we place the thought of that's an I, an object or a subject, when in fact it is simply a process of events that are going on nonstop and very quickly and oftentimes a little too quickly for attention to, um, to really hone in on it. So we jump to the conclusion of an I, and that's especially supported by our liking and disliking, and creating an I that doesn't like and dislike, etc. So what we see basically is an immensity of relationship of all elements of phenomena, interdependently, creating our experience. 
Is that, does that mean anything? <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. That sort of shows what, what, what I'm not. I mean, it's showing that all these things that arise are really interdependent events and don't represent, right. I don't know, Atman. And then I call that me, or I call that you. When that itself is a, it's an elaboration. It's, it's a diluted elaboration. Well, it's diluted only if you believe it has some substantial right. reality. Right, right. But that's... We, we still continue to use language, yes. and we, but we recognize what we are doing, and that's the difference. So, for instance, just to give you a rather obvious example, in the English language we talk about it's raining outside. That it does not refer to anything. It's a convenient grammatical marker that allows us to speak. So the same is true when we use words like I or you. So we understand that it's raining doesn't mean there's something up there that is raining. You know, it's just we can communicate without falling into delusion about what we're talking about. So language goes on and thoughts go on, even internal thoughts, but you're no longer fooled by them, fooled into thinking there's some sort of solid entity, substantial existence uh, to which this word I refers to. And I just would like to add one other thing. When Andrea talks about, you see that instead of being some particular I, there's just this ever-shifting movement of relationship, events, uh, manifestation, appearances, and so forth. You also see that as arising in a space of consciousness or awareness, which itself never arises, never passes away, has no limits, no boundaries is infinite. That is the Atman, if we're going to use the Hindu Vedanta language, mm -hmm. when they say, when a person is realized and says, oh, I realize I am that, that that is not anything. That that is that consciousness, pure consciousness. And if you look into pure consciousness and try to see what that is, you won't find anything. But it's not uh, it's not a vacuum. It's not a, it's not a nihilistic view. But what is consciousness? I mean, just in your own experience, examine it. Where does it end? What color is it? How much does it weigh? All those questions that we ask about things, we can ask about consciousness, and there are no answers to them. It is empty of attributes, as the uh, Hindus would say. Good question. But... Look for yourself. Don't take our word for it. Each of us our own laboratory. It's all right there. Yeah. Uh, Who's this addressed to? Pardon? Who is this addressed to? Oh, uh, uh, you, Joe, I guess. Okay. I wish it was <coughs> I, I, I just want to interrupt for a moment. I say this because both of us are big talkers. <laughs> <laughs> Imposes a little discipline. We're both from the East Coast. We're both from New York. And given a chance, we'll just talk on and on and on forever. <laughs> so, that's well, the reason. Along with the last question, you know, I've always people that, that have looked back, and you know, I read Alan Watts and people when I was very young, and I think at, at my advanced age that I have, uh, a, you know, if you gave me an exam, I could do fairly well with all the basic principles we're talking about. It's like, in my mind, intellectually, I got it on that level only. Okay, I do. I, and, and, 
And even psychologically, that helps me live. I mean, I think it's a very, we'll just call it a wholesome feeling about the existence. But I think part of what I live in is this almost laughable schizophrenia, our, our bifurcation, in which I still say, okay, but let's face it, phenomenally, I am Scott Matthews. I'm this age. I live over at this place. I like good food. I'd like to shift the BMW gear shift knob. Please have one. Uh, I like a lot of this stuff, and being attendant to my individuality, now I'm starting to slip into this me, 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 I, I, I stuff. Uh, I got to take care of the farm here. You know, I mean, these are basics. I mean, I don't necessarily want to perish. Okay, I won't fight it, but I am here, so what the heck? And I feel like I bifurcated into this feeling of it's not here, but it is, or it matters, but it doesn't matter, in the same breath. And I kind of get through that in a craziness during the day, and the years click by, and here I am. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect analysis. <laughs> but I still do it. I mean, this thing is basically rolling on. Well, let's uh, go back to the beginning. It's very helpful to have an intellectual understanding of these teachings uh, and to be convinced <coughs> yourself that it is true, just at an intellectual level. That is a foundation for a faith to practice, a dynamic faith of practice, not a faith that you just heard somebody say this and they're a great person so you took their word for it. But you've examined it and analyzed it for yourself and you come to the conclusion, yes, uh, this must be true. This is exactly what our teacher, Dr. Wolf, did. His whole path was very philosophical. And the first thing he had to do was convince himself logically that these teachings must be true. The teachings end in a paradox, but up to that point, they're very logical. And they, you can uh, persuade or be persuaded logically that they are true. That does not tell you the truth. It just tells you the teachings are, let's not say true, let's say that they will be useful and valid and valuable. But then, this is the big jumping off point that is crucial and a turning point in someone's path. Then you have to really start applying them to the individual uh, moments, sequences, events, relationships of your life. Because you're right, this conditioning has been built up and it just rolls along. We may be intellectually convinced this is true, but the conditioning just keeps rolling along. Now, there's one very important trap you don't want to fall into, and that is this little bit of an intellectual escape hatch, the yes but, which you said, or at least implied. Yes, but all this is true, but I have to you know, hold down the farm. I have to live my life. As though there was some dichotomy here. What mystics are really saying is, look, the truth is the truth in every moment of your existence right now. It's not like if you let go of this self, a shattering is going to happen in any phenomenological sense. Because this is the truth right now. We just have to realize it. So if you don't allow yourself this little escape hatch, then you say, yes, but how come I don't see it in every moment? And that directs the attention to the moment. How come I don't see it in this moment when I'm shifting that BMW? I mean, it's a wonderful place to do a practice. There you are driving. Who's shifting? 
And it's especially interesting to ask in uh, a situation where you are driving, and especially if you are a good driver, an experienced driver, and you watch, you will see no eye driving. It just happens. It's a wonderful place to look at that. When you start to turn your attention on the driving, you might create an eye and you will see that false sense of eye manifesting and it will manifest because suddenly the body feels awkward and doesn't do what it normally just does so perfectly when you're not there. Also gives you a clue to the value of discovering that there really is no I, truly realizing it, and then having that conditioning fall away. It's not like you won't be able to hold down the farm. It's like you'll be able to hold down the farm without any excess energy, without any friction, without any inner conflict about what's going on. Just the way you drive when you're out there driving smoothly, driving happens. And this applies to every facet of our lives. So our sense that we are doing it is actually interfering with the holding down of the farm. It's causing the conflict, the um, inner ambiguity, the, the indecision, uh, all those things that create the suffering in the situation. So really go look in each moment. Is there really an I here? If these teachings are true, that means I cannot find any I. Who is it that is driving this car? Take that as a meditation, an opportunity for practice. Watch likes and dislikes. We all have preferences. Everybody has a preference. They're culturally conditioned preferences, your family conditioned preferences. Do you know? I have a preference for roast beef rather than sea slugs. Sea slugs are considered a great delicacy in China. But I don't mistake that there is uh, anything distasteful about the sea slug itself. The sea slug is just the sea slug. The roast beef is just the roast beef. It's simply because I was brought up in the West that I prefer roast beef to sea slugs. So I don't have uh, any sense of anything being inherently good or bad in the universe. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, God, those awful sea slugs, and, mm, this yummy roast beef. It's just a preference. So all these things you can really investigate in detail in your life. That is the place to investigate because that's where the conditioning is happening. And through that investigation, through the insight you gain, the conditioning starts to fall away. And it'll start to fall away a little bit, a little bit. And then for most people, bigger chunks. And then one day, it just, it's like a house of cards. You keep pulling out cards and one day you get that final card that the whole thing comes down. Can I add something? Of course. And one of the things that we are very accustomed to is our comfort. So it's, it's easy to keep having intellectual thoughts about the nature of reality, and then at the moment of the arising of phenomena, maintain our habitual tendencies about how we respond. <clears throat> so it's right there where it seems like nothing is happening, because there's a kind of, oh, I like this, like this, and... You know, there's a, there's a kind of attraction or aversion going on with things, and we just blindly go about it. Then there is no direct experience of the nature of, of those things. However, all the traditions speak about how suffering is one of the greatest fields for the seed of awareness to grow, because when those things that keep occurring and keep coming up again are quite comfortable, 
it's an extremely unusual being that's going to go right in the place of comfort and look and analyze the empty nature of it. So oftentimes suffering comes into our lives because it is the intensity to break us out of that sleep. It's almost the sleep of a, of a demigod. Like one of the, uh, one of the ideas in, in Buddhism is that there are six, six different levels of being, and one of them is like a, a, a god realm. And a god realm is simply the expression of good circumstances, and good circumstances arising and us being uh, sleepers throughout those circumstances, in a sense. Yes. I liked your driving analogy a minute ago, I think. Um, but it's, to me, it's like playing golf. You know, if you, there's so many rules, you know, you know, people would read books and hold your head down. And if, if you really concentrate on all those rules, there's no way you can hit a golf ball. <laughs> I wonder if meditation, you know, and all these things we consider, if we're not in danger of, of uh, sort of creating our own distractions, you know, keeping us from, from getting where we want to go by thinking about, about too many rules. Is, there not, is that not a danger? It is. There's absolutely no teaching that's ever been spoken, written down, uh, or whatever, recorded in some way, that cannot also be a danger. Because the mind seizes on the teachings themselves as a structure with which to identify. So you might start following all these rules. Let's say you became a Buddhist monk. I think there are like 105 vows, little, you know, things like you can't sleep on high beds and all sorts of things. So you really organize your life and you really attach these rules and now you have a, a very solid, comfortable identity as a Buddhist monk. You know, you're better than everybody else because you're a monk and you've given all this stuff. And, you know, they, you can become very attached to that. So there's no guarantees uh, in any of these teachings, any of these practices, because the ego mind can take anything and turn it to its own service. So this is why you have to be your own authority about what's useful for you and what's not. And you have to develop your own inner wisdom to know when you are becoming too attached to something. But in the meantime, as a general statement, a relative statement for most people for thousands of years have found a certain amount of discipline very necessary and helpful on a path. That's why it keeps getting <coughs> passed down. Therese, were you going to say something? The thing that occurred to me is, you know, in his preferences, whatever, that in noticing that and maybe just experimenting, see what would happen if I instead of taking my BMW, walk to the bus stop and do this kind of thing and watching this. It's surprising then the farm changes. I mean, you know, he's got his farm that he's got to keep, but then the farm changes as you do these things. So there's change in all sorts of ways. This is very true, very true. Uh, it's a whole other discussion, uh, a way to go here, and that relates to what Andre was saying about suffering. One of the other kinds of questions you can ask, and perhaps for some people more valuable than starting in the question, who am I, and is there really somebody there, is what causes suffering? And you find yourself in the midst of suffering, and that's the time to make that inquiry. Why am I suffering? What is the cause of the suffering here? And, for instance, in your case, it might be you're very attached to your BMW. 
So you enjoy driving around your BMW. The BMW gets wrecked. You know, you, you leave in a parking lot, you come out and someone's plowed into it. You have tremendous amount of suffering. So why are you suffering in that moment? That's the question to ask and, and an analysis to make. You know, what is it about uh, the situation? It seems obvious to everybody. Well, of course I'm suffering. My BMW just got wrecked. <laughs> but if you really look into it, you see, well, who is it that owns a BMW? Ownership is a fiction. It's totally imaginary. Do you know what I mean? And, and this is what Teresa's talking about, what happens if you uh, then, instead of going out and buying another BMW, you didn't buy a car for a while? Okay. So you start riding your bike, you take the bus, you walk. You might have a whole different experience of life that you've missed because you've been so rigidly attached to that BMW. So the farm will change, as she says. Just real quickly, uh, what's interesting, and I probably didn't say it very well, is I don't own a BMW. <laughs> but what's interesting is I have ordered one. <laughs> and the reason that seemed to pop into my pea brain here was when I was talking to you that moment was I went through a lot of consternation about silly boy. You're going to go get this toy. I mean, I can sort of afford it. I don't have a lot of money, but I can. But I've identified with shifting. I can see myself. That's what brought up this, this really a little bit of a suffering about, my God, who am I to get this stupid thing? That's not me. And I don't want to keep the attention on me, but that's what I went through. And I do take a Jefferson 33 religiously into town. Everywhere I can on buses. I will not change that. So I'll, 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 uh, look, again, the, the, the real point here is freedom. Yes, absolutely. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. This conflict, well, who am I to have a BMW? There's some image of yourself about who you should be. Sure. And it does not include the luxury of having a BMW, right? So then you want the BMW, there's the desire, and there's the image that says, I can't have a BMW, and then there's conflict and there's suffering. And he'll switch yes. to Rolls-Royce. Right. <laughs> I know a woman whose suffering comes from the fact that she has a BMW, and she used to have a Mercedes, and she's very unhappy now with her BMW. Every time that I see her, she's complaining about her BMW. She's miserable with it. You don't think a BMW can be the source of misery and unhappiness, but it can be. And again, it's showing the relative nature of all these things. Our problem is we take them as though they are fixed. And, and freedom is not about giving up something because you feel you ought to do it. Freedom is about you're happy whether it's there or whether it's not there. Your happiness does not depend on any external circumstance whatsoever. You may still have culturally conditioned preferences, but that will not affect your happiness just because the expectations based on those aren't fulfilled. You see what I mean? So keep that in mind. It's about freedom. It's not about doing this or this in any sort of rigid way. You're free of whatever circumstances arise. And also in this particular case, every time we have an image of I should be, ta -da 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 -da, then because awareness is wise and it is your wisdom always awakening you in every moment, you're going to have a conflict with who I shouldn't be. As soon as we have this strong image of, I should be this, I should drive this car, I, that, then you're going to have, oh, I shouldn't drive this car. And the images of I will be in confrontation. 
And part of the reason for that is, in fact, to display that they are merely images. Yes. Right. Well, since this is a one-room schoolhouse, here's a question from the first grade section. Uh, I understand intellectually, when we talk about the golfing and the driving, at some point, I understand, Joel, your response about driving happens. Well, I'm at the point where driving doesn't happen unless I demonstrate <laughs> my body or in the car unless I forgot to set the brake. You know, the car's not going to go unless I'm there doing something. Certain things don't happen unless, quote, I show up. And participate. I'm confused. I mean, um, uh, you see what I mean. I'm still identifying with um, with the physical body. Okay, but that's a good question to ask. Then you're making, for instance, a distinction between the body and the car. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then, this is a good place to do this inquiry. The next time you walk out of your house, or when you walk out of here, do you have your car here? Yeah. Today. Okay. So you walk out. So you see the car. So in what way is the car different from you, from the total situation? There is awareness. There is a car appearing in a visual image of a car, right? You approach the car. You touch the car. So sensation arises in that moment. There's no sensation without this hand-touching car. Right. right. Right? And you know the analysis. I don't want to go through it all here. But you... Every aspect of the car is something appearing in your awareness, or just appearing in awareness, let's say, to be more technical, right? Yes. So where is the true separation? It's appearing just as your hand appears in awareness, your thoughts appear in awareness, whatever else. It's all appearing in awareness. There is nothing but consciousness and its forms. For convenience sake, we divide up one set of forms, we put a label on it and call that Mike's body, and another set of sensations, we label car. So we can talk about it and think about it. But truly speaking, you will not find any, any true separation. So when driving happens, it's not a question of your driving car, it's the total situation without any true divisions arising in consciousness. This is the point. We are fooled by the convention. You can also just do the simple analysis of you think you are your body. Well, then you just start observing. What body are we talking about? You go meditate on the body. You find, what, sensations arising and passing away very rapidly. You find different phenomena arising in the visual field, passing away. Sounds, you know, stomach gurgling, coughing, speaking, all arising, passing away. Various taste smells. But wh where is there any body in there? It's just all different phenomena arising in consciousness. This is a matter of direct, immediate, empirical experience. It's not a matter of logically being convinced there's no body. This is the key thing, you see. It's really doing the practice, meditating on it, until you come to a direct, immediate experience. You say, well, gee, I never find any body here. I find sensations, I find sights and sounds, all this stuff that's arising and passing away, but I never actually get to something that's called a body. And I never get to something that's called a car. So all this talk of a body driving a car is, is simply for convenience. It has nothing to do with reality, as it is. Not some wooey reality, you know, that only uh, 
I don't know, some yogi in the Himalayas experiences in deep samadhi. This reality right now, that's the simple truth of this reality. But you have to investigate. You know, it's interesting, I find in our culture, uh, in this particular time and place, among liberal middle class people, they are so uh, leery of authority and taking anything uh, on anybody else's word for it. They're so proud of their own thought processes, conclusions they've come to and so forth, and without at all realizing how totally dominated we are by the doctrines inherent even in our language, the doctrines about what reality is. Just take it for granted without ever examining it. And this is why really one way to describe a mystical practice is a practice of radical doubt. Don't believe anything that you were taught. Don't believe anything that's assumed in your language. Just because we speak this way, it's not necessarily true. Do you see what I mean? So if you can make use of doubt in that way, not as an excuse to say, well, I don't think any of this is worth anything. I'll just go, you know, uh, drive my BMW. Pick up the girls. <laughs> You're hooked for the rest of the afternoon. Escape down here. Really, look into it. See if it's true. If you just assume it is true, there's a car and there's a body, yes. Then your question makes sense. But the way you ask the question presumes there's a body and a car there. And what I'm saying to you is if you go look, I don't think you'll find any body and I don't think you'll find any car. So then what happened? a bad neighborhood? (laughs) (laughs) And this is is exactly the reason why we meditate, because to look the way Joel is is referring to requires somewhat of a cessation of assumed conclusion, which is what we're doing all the time. This is how we're comfortable in the world. Oh, I assume this and I assume, and now I don't have to think about it. I can just go along and my day will be taken care of. So to actually cease assumption and conclusion and to exist in the investigative awake alert fresh totally what's happening mode requires a whole other presentation and awareness about what we're doing and dr wolf used to say that thought and concept the great office of that is to precipitate experience direct experience So that when we have thoughts, we're having direct experience and to recognize that. So that's going on all the time. So what we're doing is we're reconditioning thought so that what precipitates in thought is, oh, this is assumed. Here's a body, here's a car. And then there's a gap. And in that gap, the thought, and in this particular case, what I see to be the most beneficial thought is the simultaneous arising of many aspects in awareness is what experience is. Seeing arises with something to be seen. Hearing arises with something to be heard. The sense of driving arises because you go back and back. You woke up at this time. You woke up at this time because of that. You have a job because of this. You live in this house. You live in this car. You have to go to work. I mean, there's all these things that are arising simultaneously creating an experience. 
And so one of the ways we drop out of that really solid subject-object body, driving car, or whatever, is to have this little thought, mm, simultaneous arising in awareness. That's the events of experience. And it, it just opens up gaps where we can investigate a little deeper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, comment um, on, the, on these last two comments or questions. Uh, what I found was helpful is the concept of while you're doing something, is maybe hard to have you know that non sense of non doership. But if you look back at the end of the day or look back at an event in the past, you can see you know the doership becomes attenuated, or we can you know it's it's less. Well, if you started with the idea, I want to have an experience of non-doership, you're already in trouble. <laughs> Who's the I that wants to have this experience? Right, yeah. If you start with an investigation, is there a doer here at all? And you use thought in an analytic way, as Andrea was describing before, to really look into any particular situation. It's not that you will have an experience of non-doership, you will discover that that is the fundamental nature of things. Now, that is actually not an experience. It seems like an experience because what usually happens is our conditioning rolls in again, so it seems like something that happened in time and place. But it's really like uh, uncovering the bottom of the sea that's always there as the bottom of the sea, and then waves roll over, and then you think you've lost sight of it. You say, oh, that was a marvelous experience. But the bottom of the sea is still the bottom of the sea, even though you don't see it at that time, you see what I mean? So it's much more helpful to approach any experience with some sort of understanding. Uh, otherwise, you just have an experience of no self, and it was a marvelous experience, and then it goes away, and you go, oh, what happened? That was serendipitous, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But if you, uh, if you approach it with intelligence and a true inquiry into the experience, then you see not only there is no self, but you also begin to see the causes of the conditioning that hide that fact. And then when you can recognize them arising moment to moment, you just, just by looking, you see, oh, this is just conditioned behavior. And so it no longer enslaves you no longer mass the reality. So it's much more important, really, to make inquiry than to have a lot of wonderful spiritual experiences. Or let's put it this way. If you are having a lot of wonderful spiritual experiences, don't become a spiritual hedonist. And, you know, just yeah. do your practice in order to have a lot of wonderful experiences. You have to bring awareness. You have to bring insight to the experiences to make them valuable, to make them more than just some sort of spiritual vacation, you know. It's especially useful to bring this awareness into states of suffering, into um, very intense states of delusion, of anger and jealousy and pain and et cetera, et cetera. And there, to, to bring that analysis, you have to suspend attachment to what what is being viewed. Well, there's really nothing there. You know? I mean, if you... <laughs> If you look at the atoms, you get down to it. But then that's a huge amount of space, you know. And then if you manage to catch an electron just to see what it is, it ceases to exist. And without the electrons, nothing exists. Well, again, you see, especially for some people who are 
uh, very influenced in their worldview by science, it's very valuable to go study quantum mechanics and to see the paradoxes that science itself runs into. Because science is really, at least for educated people in our culture, become the religion and the dogma of the culture. The scientists are the priests, and you know, and so if science says, well, that's true, then it must be true. Well, go investigate. And as you're raising this question, I don't want to get off the whole discussion of quantum mechanics. But what quantum mechanics shows us is the old materialist worldview of the last century does not hold water scientifically. And if you continue to believe it, to take it as true and believe it, you're just like a fundamentalist, you know, taking some uh, old dogma as, as though it were still true. This was very important on my path because I was a hard-nosed materialist. I thought, it, you know, literally, people coming to a place like this were all, you know, on a wishful thinking path. My whole attitude was, get real, you know? I mean, what's important is money and, you know, BMWs and things like that. <laughs> and it was encountering uh, some quantum mechanics that made me realize, you dummy, you've been hanging on to this obsolete idea that's not supported by science anymore. And you're proud of it. <laughs> so it can be very valuable. Whatever is valuable, whatever is valuable to make you inquire into all the things that you assume to be true about your life. The ideas, the, even the experiences, because ideas affect our experience. That's why it's very hard to experience the fact that I am not different from this car. Our ideas determine our experience. This is why the farm changes. We start having different ideas, we go investigate, we have different experiences, and the farm you're trying to hold down may not be there in a year. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that farm you were trying to hold down doesn't exist. <laughs> we're trying to hold down a farm that's uh, not even there. Yes? So this summer I was out uh, picking blackberries on this uh, immense bramble. I was about 20 feet in the air. And uh, there's just layers of them hang, hanging down I had a little basket here and I kept filling them up, setting in this one spot. And kept getting higher and higher, but the berries got bigger and bigger. So rather than going around the bramble, I said, you know, I want those big berries. You know, they like gleam in the eye. And it's just, there was always another one. In fact, I got to the point where, you know, rather than put the berries down the basket, I wanted the next one so bad. I was squeezing on the other ones and the juice was running out. It's this immediacy thing. And what I ended up doing is, actually started crawling up the bramble there were the old dead cane from the year before and i'd worked myself quite a ways up and i was really into the good berries and uh, all of a sudden i heard this big crack <laughs> down i went you know <laughs> right at the moment i was just ripped i mean i was bleeding and the whole thing and uh my reaction was is all of a sudden i just I kind of like got mad at this bramble you know and i was saying things like uh I'm going to go to town and get, get a machete and you're going to wish you're going to lay out, you know. And, uh, but I, I finally extricated myself out of that, but I started laughing. And it's just like I couldn't control myself. All of a sudden, I was having more fun than I'd had in a long, long time. It's like a whole bunch of things came into focus. I felt like I was alive and I was going to do battle with this. <laughs> with this uh, bramble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, same person would have gone home. 
but you know, at this point, not me. I went and found a fence post that had a bunch of wire rolled around it. I mean, I was just torn to pieces, but I picked the whole top end out of this thing before I went home. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but there was something about that, the immediacy of, you know, the gleam of the berry, the next one up is a little bigger than, you know, that was uh, elemental. You know, it's like there's something in me that this is very elemental. You know, thinking about it, I'm, you know, I think of myself, uh, in a sense, I'm, I'm just a kind of grown-up sperm looking for my hero's journey in the world, you know? I mean, what, what is this journey thing? Aren't we driven? I mean, this, isn't this how the human being got from these very primitive elemental uh, steps in life to where we are now, which is called civilized? I mean, that gleam in the eye is what's important, and reaching out that little bit of greed, you know? Yeah. I mean, if it wasn't there, then where would we be at? I don't know. Well, there is something sacred about our greed. We know, everybody knows intuitively that true happiness is possible. We know it. Everybody knows that. Sometimes it gets beaten out of us halfway through life and we give up, but we know it and it operates in every moment of our life. Whether we're reaching for that bigger berry or the BMW, or do you know what I mean? If only I could get this, I would be happy. Now, what's interesting is how do we know happiness is possible? We're born with this knowledge. We're born with this search, this quest, this hero's journey, looking for that holy grail. And the only thing that mystics say is not that this is not a true intuition, not that you shouldn't be doing this, but you're looking in the wrong place. And the way most of us look is we look outside ourselves. And in the looking outside ourselves, we set up the conditions for continuing suffering. And if we cease to look outside ourselves and start looking inwards, then we find something very paradoxical. Oh, the very search itself has moved us away from the happiness that is already inherent in us as sentient beings. It's already there. But because of our delusion, we think it's out there or tomorrow or in the next moment or in the next berry. So we keep moving that way. And when we discover that it's in here and it doesn't depend on anything out there, then whether it's a, a big berry or a bramble, it doesn't matter. It's all the same to us. It's all the same in the sense that we no longer are motivated to act based on the illusion that we are going to become happy. We are happy. Then we act to express that happiness. Just the way you went out and beat up this bush. I mean, it's a funny kind of expression of happiness, but it's true, wasn't it? I mean, it's crazy, but it was exuberance of life, right? And you didn't care what people thought of you or, you know, whether this is a, a smart idea or a dumb idea or whatever. It's just that expression of that exuberance coming out. So, yes, our thirst for happiness is proof that happiness exists. Rumi has another wonderful line. He says, keep on searching, O man of dry lips, because the dryness of the lips is a message from the water that I exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
the proof that happiness exists is that we thirst for it. And speaking in mythic terms, we're all eventually going to find it. It's like if you wanted to get to Portland and you went out to I-5 and you started uh, heading south, I might say, oh, wait a minute, Bob, you're going the wrong direction. <laughs> you're never going to get to Portland heading south. Now, in a relative sense, that's true. But if you keep going, <laughs> you'll get to Portland. You'll have a long, interesting adventure. <laughs> but you'll get there. A Christian mystic, John Scott of Saragina, says that our, our thirst for happiness, our restlessness, our searching is really the search for God, even though we may be searching for, uh, you know, physical things. It's just our mistaken perception of what is going to bring us happiness. And eventually, in the Christian tradition, of course, if you search for God in this life and you don't find God and you spend the whole life, you know, searching after sensual pleasures, uh, you go to hell. And then in the Orthodox Christian traditions, you know, hell is forever. You just burn in hell for eternity. Well, he says there are two things wrong with that. First of all, only God is eternal. Hell's not real. Only God is real. Only God is eternal. So hell can't be eternal. But he said also the thing is our restlessness doesn't stop. It takes us to hell, but we're still not satisfied in hell. <laughs> and that's as far as you can go from God. So our restlessness turns around and we start coming back. Because that restlessness until we find God will never go away. Now, these are big, mythic, cosmic ways of describing just what you're talking about. The truth that in that reaching for the berry, there's a tremendous intelligence in that. But is it the berry that's going to make you happy? And one way to begin a practice is, if you love berries, don't deny yourself berries. Go right down to the supermarket, buy a, uh, whatever the latest berry in season, bring it home, and eat them slowly. And see how long the pleasure of the taste lasts for you. And you will be convinced in a short time the berries are not going to bring you abiding happiness. <laughs> and you can even be more experimental. And this is why you see rules are very helpful. They give us a way to experiment. Eat more berries than you want. <laughs> and you will see how pleasure turns into suffering. The very thing that's the source of the pleasure it turns into a source of suffering. Because you'll have a bellyache and you'll be running to the John every half hour. Do you know what I mean? All these things show us the ephemeral, impermanent nature of all this display. And that weans us from attachments to this display. And that naturally turns our attention inward. And so we continue the quest, but now we're looking at a different place. The exact same quest exact same journey. And with that, I think we should bring the formal part of the morning to a close. So uh, you're welcome to check out the library. There's some tea. Uh, and until we see you again, peace to you all.